Your source for community. Muskoka-made talk shows are on Muskoka Magazine. The Bay, 88.7. Hey, this is Dr. Shervin. Muskoka Magazine is brought to you by Dairy Lane Dental. Keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka with your host, Patrick Boyer. Hello and welcome. For this program about Muskoka during the 1920s, Let's take a look at the automobile revolution. (laughs) Part of what gave the Roaring Twenties its name was the way horseless carriages, as they were first called, made so much more noise than horses. The decade's accelerating pace and rising decibel count is really the story of the internal combustion engine and its revolutionary impact on road transport, in the air, and on the water. The internal combustion engine powered not only passenger vehicles and trucks, but early buses, airplanes, and speedboats. On any given day, you could hear a roar just about anywhere. Engines had been evolving since the late 1700s, and dozens of scientists, inventors, and engineers played roles in developing them, with patents being granted as early as 1807. In 1859, Belgian-French engineer Etienne Lenoir developed the first commercially successful internal combustion engine, 1859. 20 years later, German engineer Nicholas Otto came up with its first modern version using petroleum gas for fuel. And two decades after that, German mechanical engineer Rudolf Diesel invented a more fuel-efficient system, and you know what it's called. In 1897, he successfully tested his diesel engine, which required heavier, more robust construction than a gasoline engine. Now, long before that, way back in 1867, the year of Confederation, the year Muskoka was just first getting settled. The first automobile in Canada had been built by Henry Seth Taylor at Stansted in Quebec's Eastern Townships. It was run by a steam engine In the early 1900s, these had been improved, and at least one early automobile in Muskoka was steam-powered. Electric motors were also in the running, and in time, diesel engines too would be developed for passenger cars. But for a variety of reasons, the noisy, gasoline-fueled internal combustion engine became most popular, then dominant. 
Up to the First World War, about 40 motor vehicles could be heard puttering around Muskoka. The first in Bracebridge was a 1910 Russell Knight touring car owned by lawyer Arthur Mahaffey, who was also Muskoka's member of the provincial legislature. In October 1910, Huntsville's Dr. Jacob Hart, who'd built the town's first hospital, was back in the news driving its first motor vehicle. Hart told the Forester, for its front page story, he expected to take his McLaughlin Buick out into the countryside to attend patients. Another Muskoka doctor, Peter McGiven of Bracebridge, also switched from horses to automobiles, and by 1914 was piloting a roomy, comfortable, and swift 35 horsepower overland through town and countryside, at least to the extent Muskoka's treacherous roads permitted. Muskoka's first woman car driver almost certainly was enterprising Mabel Brown, who'd owned and operated her own Main Street millinery shop in Bracebridge before marrying Dr. McGibbon. She used the overland when he was busy performing surgeries. In Gravenhurst too, doctors at the tuberculosis sanitariums and businessmen of the town were now among those driving a variety of cars. Automobiles were also finding their way to Muskoka's villages. From as early as 1907, Baysville's first cars were driven by the hotel-owning Hendersons and touring guests staying at their resort, who'd adventurously driven up the Bob Cajun Road to Lake of Bays. By the end of the war, Port Carling's first automobile would be owned by William Massey, tugboat engineer, livery stable owner, and skillful practical mechanic who loved engines so much, he would soon open the village's first garage as well to service cars. Cars, of course, was just short for carriages, itself an abbreviation for horseless carriages. Automobiles were expensive. Most came from small Canadian plants turning out just two or three a day. Many were custom-made and not very affordable. Regular folk considered them a plaything for the rich, something they'd never own. That 1910 model Russell Knight car Muskoka's MPP was driving is a good way to examine more about the state of pre-war vehicles. For instance, it was called a touring car because it had both front and back seats. The driver could take enough passengers to qualify the trip as a tour. Nearly all touring cars held five passengers, but some had fold-down seats attached to the back of the front seat, enabling car salesmen to promote them as seven-passenger automobiles. The car with a single seat was called a roadster, which sounds like more fun a pioneer sports car. At the back of some Roadster models, where we'd now find the trunk, a couple could ride in a separate area called the rumble seat. Even more fun. Mr. Mahaffey's car had other notable features, 
The back seat was higher than the front one, enabling touring passengers to enjoy a better view and more wind in their faces. All cars in this era were open to the elements. What about warnings? Horse-drawn vehicles could be heard by bells attached to their harnesses. But automobiles, like bicycles, which had become a rage since the 1890s, were equipped with a warning horn, as they are today. But it was installed in front of the dashboard and the driver honked it by squeezing a large rubber bulb on the steering column to push air through the horn. By 1908, a variation called the klaxon, a brass tube horn with an even sharper warning, was fastened beside the driver, who operated it by jamming down on a plunger. Also, like train engines, in addition to their whistles, had a large brass bell uh, to ring with increasing urgency in the case of cars as the driver warned of an impending crash. What else? Well, Mr. Mahaffey's Russell Knight, like most cars, had a four-cylinder engine, though some models had six. None could be started remotely, like with a fob today, though you did have to be outside the car to get it going. A driver hand-cranked the engine while standing at the front of the car. Headlights operated on gas, side lamps on coal oil, which was also the fuel burnt for the taillights. Taillights showed green to the left, red at the rear, while a clear light at the right rear shone onto the license plate, which initially was made of leather. Before too long, that plate with the vehicle's registration number was upgraded to more durable metal. Now, nobody needed a driver's license. Everybody had the right to drive their own car, just as they did their horse or boat. There were no garages to service autos. Gasoline was first sold at pharmacies because licensed pharmacists were trustworthy handling dangerous liquids. Then hardware merchants who sold coal as fuel for engines and furnaces considered they were also equal to the task of fueling cars. In Bracebridge, by 1914, gasoline could be bought for 20 cents a gallon at Eccleson and Bates Hardware Store on the main street. The clerk carried it out in a five-gallon can and poured it into the car's tank through a metal funnel with a chamois in it acting as a filter. Some motorists began keeping a barrel of gasoline in their garage at home. Car owners did their own grease jobs, filling and screwing down grease caps. Tires were a real problem, completely smooth, no tread. Wheels spun even in mud puddles. When roads themselves became muddy, drivers put chains on the tires, standard equipment in the car, to give traction. Flat tires were common which is why a couple spares were carried, perhaps more when motoring up to Muskoka from Toronto, a trip requiring many hours, even more when changing flat tires. And drivers inflated their tires by hand pump. The brakes on every automobile 
were just two-wheel and mechanical. No vehicle had windshield wipers, nor, especially bad when bouncing over Muskoka's rough roads, shock absorbers. For car trouble a motorist could not solve, most communities had somebody who could look things over and make a fix. In Bracebridge, best bet was Bill Simons, superintendent of the town's electric and water systems. He'd help gratis, though if heavy work was needed, the vehicle was towed by horses to the foundry shop where a fee was charged. Now for ceremonial occasions, automobiles were increasingly replacing horse-drawn vehicles. So in late July, 1914, on the very cusp of World War, virtually every car then in Bracebridge marshaled at the train station, fully polished and fueled, waiting in a procession line to transport Canada's Minister of War, Sam Hughes, and two dozen district dignitaries. When the hero of the hour arrived aboard his special military train, two town bands played, hundreds cheered, and all 15 automobiles, bearing Hughes and the entourage, rolled through town to a boisterous pro-war rally at Memorial Park. While people along the route waved at the officials, they gazed even more intently at the stunning array of passing Studebakers, Overlands, Chevrolets, Fords, and McLaughlin Buicks being driven by their proud owners. So there's a snapshot of early automobiles in Muskoka. After a brief station break, we'll turn to how technologies rapidly advanced during the highly mechanized war and were extended for civilian purposes in peacetime and how the Roaring Twenties motorcars began altering the very character of Muskoka itself. This is Dr. Shervin. Hello. Dr. Shervin owns a dental practice in Huntsville. Yes, ma'am. But it's not only a dental practice. Dairy Lane Dental plays a major role in our community, supporting organizations that enrich your town like Community Radio, being a member of the Bay Food Crew, and Huntsville Hospital Foundation Business Cares Program. Dr. Shervin and his team at Dairy Lane Dental knows that alongside truly understanding their patients by providing a pleasant dental experience comes a responsibility to take care of our home. This is correct. Dairy Lane Dental, keeping Muskoka smiling for over 30 years. Please visit DairyLaneDental.com. Buy Muskoka for Muskoka. Your collection of Muskoka-based talk shows. Muskoka Magazine, The Bay, 88.7. I'm Dr. Shervin from Dairy Lane Dental, and you're listening to Muskoka Magazine. This is Boyer's Modern History of Muskoka, with your host, Patrick Boyer. Welcome back. I'm Patrick Boyer. By the end of the war in 1918 and 1919, changed men came home to a different Muskoka. At first, Muskokans, along with the rest of the world, put things on hold and struggled for months through the Spanish flu pandemic, which claimed millions of lives across the continent and around the world. After all that, a new era for automobiles became an economic, social, and cultural revolution. As speed of travel increased, distances seemed shorter. Going places 
more convenient. Ontario and the entire continent was on course to become a network of connecting roadways. Automobiles, which before the war were few and owned by the wealthy, now gave new freedom to hundreds of thousands, then millions of individuals in all ranks of society. Birth of a dynamic new economy for automobiles brought far-reaching social changes, enhanced personal mobility, and created, created a new car-centric culture. In the roaring 20s, cars were all the rage. People once viewed automobiles as toys for the rich, but when car maker Ransom Olds conceived of interchangeable components, assembly line production became possible, reducing a car's price to customers. Manufacturers began mass producing them, and people who previously owned a horse to pull their buggy or sleigh now bought a car. In the 1920s, Canada became the world's most motorized country after the United States. Each year of the decade, an increasing number of cars, trucks, buses, and motorcycles were registered. The number rose from 408,000 new cars in 1920 to 1,235,000 by 1930. That's more than one and a quarter million new vehicles in Canada every year. The auto industry went from eighth to fourth place among Canadian manufacturing industries. During the decade, the amount of money invested in car making more than doubled from $40 million to $98 million. Two factors above all others were behind these impressive numbers. One was Canada's stiff 35% import duty on cars. This tariff wall caused American automakers to open branch plants north of the border. Although smaller U.S. car companies just assembled new vehicles in Canada using lower tariff American-made parts that they shipped over, the big three automakers, Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, opened factories that did more than assembly work. They actually built their vehicles entirely in Canada. By manufacturing on this side of the border, the technically advanced, lower-priced vehicles were more easily distributed across the country and purchased by Canadians. In addition to having competitively priced cars for Canadians, these American-owned subsidiaries, as Canadian companies, got a bonus benefit when exporting cars anywhere throughout the vast British Empire. Thanks to imperial trade preferences, this British system of lower tariffs created the empire's own common market. With Canadian-built motor vehicles, the Americans had, like a Trojan horse, gotten themselves inside the fortified British enclave, enabling these U.S. automakers to indirectly slip sideways into Britain, the British Empire countries around the world. As a result, Canada's automakers soon became unique among Canadian industries, 
with fully a third of their manufactured products selling outside the domestic market. You may remember in our last program, I talked about Canada moving into closer orbit with the United States after the First World War. A specific case study of what that looked like is what was happening in the automotive industry. It first began back in 1904 when Canadian automaker making leapt ahead because Gordon McGregor and several other Windsor entrepreneurs incorporated the Ford Motor Company of Canada. Right after Henry Ford, American inventor and promoter, set up his production company in 1903 in Detroit, just across the river from Windsor. The Canadians, using the Walkerville Wagon Company's works, assembled uh, cars and with Canadian parts ferried across the river from Detroit, the beginnings of Canada-U.S. automotive collaboration. Then, Canada's most prominent pioneer in automobile manufacturing, Colonel R.S. McLaughlin, switched production at his family's prospering Oshawa plant. Instead of building sleighs and carriages, it now housed production of his McLaughlin automobile. This exceptionally fine vehicle's only problem was its roaring loud internal combustion engine. By 1908, McLaughlin inked a deal orchestrated by financier William Durant, who'd formed General Motors in the US, that solved his noise problem. David Buick's quiet humming engines would be combined with McLaughlin-designed bodies. The marvelous McLaughlin-Buick combo soon gained wide renown, including in Muskoka, as the very first automobile in Huntsville. Next, GM's Durant offered Colonel McLaughlin Canadian rights to the Chevrolet Classic 6, a five-passenger touring car designed by racing car driver uh, Louis Chevrolet. So by 1918, with the United States finally in the war on the Allied side, demand for motorized vehicles of many types rose steeply. McLaughlin Motor Company and Chevrolet Motor Company of Canada merged with McLaughlin, the consolidated company's president. Production on both sides of the border ramped up. Although steam and electric vehicles had a number of operating benefits, the edge kept going to the increasingly popular internal combustion engine. South of the border, Detroit predominated by building on that city's well-established manufacturing base for horse-drawn carriages, bicycles, and boat engines. North of the border, early years of Canadian car making saw thousands of automobiles roll out, including the Leroy, the popular Russell, the Tudhope, the Thomas, the Galt, and others. But the small independent Canadian companies making those vehicles did not survive, a huge problem being Canada's surplus of land and deficit of people. A single Consolidated government-backed automaker might have prevailed, as they have in other countries. But that was not the path Canadian and American capitalists chose. Instead, under private enterprise and burgeoning demands for motor vehicles, from 1918 to 1923, 
Canada became the world's second largest vehicle producer and major exporter, all related to the large scale, big business, private sector, cross-border operations of North America's automakers. The advantage Windsor, Oshawa, and other Southern Ontario cities had was proximity to Detroit, as the automotive economies on each side of the Detroit River became entwined. With most cars sold in Canada being American models built by Canadian auto workers, thousands of jobs have been created in the motor vehicle plants mostly in Ontario. By 1929, this number had risen to 13,000 full-time employees. Thousands more had jobs making the primary materials needed in building motor vehicles, such as tires and spare parts, while another legion of workers was deployed repairing and servicing autos. Beyond those producing and maintaining, the many thousands of cars and trucks were millions more whose social and economic life was increasingly linked to motor vehicles and roads. Muskokans kept pace with all of this. Gas could now be purchased at roadside pumps. Service centers became profitable businesses by including, with gas sales, lubrication service and other engine work, pressurized air for filling tires, water for radiator tanks, and basic body work. Local dealerships sold the different makes. One Huntsville car dealer, carrying Fords, advertised, there are cars you cannot afford. And then there's a Ford. As cars multiplied, roads needed upgrading. Town and village councils carried out street improvements, initially with residents along streets who wanted it, petitioning for paving and then getting a roadway improvement charge on their tax bill for the improvement that raised their property values. The townships with longer connecting roads had fewer people and less money, so their concession lines and cross-country routes remained poor to terrible. The province generally left these matters to local government. It was the townships with ratepayers voting approval of funding stage by stage in plebiscites who built a road between Bracebridge and Port Carling today's Highway 118 West. In the 1920s, response to the need for broader, bolder action, automobile clubs formed. A better roads movement took shape. Then a road builders association emerged and all three entities, as well as municipal governments, ramped up pressure on the Ontario government to get with the new era a pattern common across Canada, the US, and in Europe. The automobile clubs formed the Canadian Automobile Association, or CAA. South of the border, the same forces created the American Automobile Club, the, today the AAA. And echoing the Canada-US pattern of making cars, these two organizations for those driving them also developed interlocking mutual arrangements. In Muskoka, the automobile club helped locals and vacationers alike by plastering highly visible yellow and black directional signs along roadways and at intersections. Port Carling, 17 miles. Bala, 12 miles. Dorset, 26 miles. Particular roadway corners at the outskirts of Muskoka's major towns 
and at highway crossroads became postcard-worthy roadside symbols of the automobile era. Dozens of these directional signs on a cluster of posts and utility poles. The Bracebridge Automotive Club encouraged summer visitors by creating its well-equipped Kelvin Grove Motor Park for the touring public, charmingly located on the large bay below the town's waterfalls. Getting better roads became a mission of survival for a district whose vacation economy was a pillar of everyone's life. Travel and transport in Muskoka's early years had centered on waterways, including when iced over in winter while difficult roadways with horse-drawn traffic remained secondary. However, to stay a viable vacation land player in this new continental universe of touring automobiles, Muskoka faced an existential challenge. In another broadcast, we can look at how that fate was confronted when Muskoka's traditional steam era tourism patterns began passing into history and the age of the horse also became further eclipsed both in the wake of the Roaring Twenties Automobile Revolution. Thanks for listening to this installment of Muskoka's Modern History. Producer for our broadcast here at Hunters Bay Radio in Huntsville is Jacob Krieger. I'm Patrick Boyer. Thank you.